Hello and welcome to Journal Club where we walk you through an academic paper step by step and use our critical insight and knowledge in science to help you understand and critically analyze research that you come across or simply you might just find it fun to listen to scientists talk about research. Anyways, today's episode, we are looking at a paper called Parents' Use of Social Media as Health Information Source for Their Children. This was a rad article that Dr. Lisa from drlisa.researcher recommended. So stay tuned and listen to a few scientists get their nerd on and uh, enjoy the episode. So today we're talking about a paper that Lisa actually got me onto. Mm -hmm which is parents' use of social media as a health information source for their children. So a scoping review. Basically, what they did was they ran, it's kind of like a systematic review, but a scoping review is a very early version of that. Um, they were looking at how parents use social media to find health information for their children, what motivates parents to engage with social media to seek health information for their children, and how do parents seek to understand and evaluate the health information they find on social media, and how does social media impact parental health information seeking. Now, these guys were heavy in the medical side of it. Mm -hmm. um, they searched almost exclusively medical databases. Their questions were very medically oriented. So um, while it does focus on the medical stuff, there is a lot of parallels that I've noticed when like reading this of like social media in the parenting space as well. Um, so what they found, they found 42 studies that met their search criteria, and we can talk about that later. Um, and they found that parents use social media for information about specific health concerns, both before and after a medical diagnosis for their child. And they're motivated to engage with social media as they seek out extensive ex information based on lived experience from other parents, as well as social support and community. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. That's what they use it for. Um, there were positives and negatives, as Lisa pointed out in her original post. So go and see that if you want a very quick um, primer to it. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear what you guys think of the paper, and we can just start, you know, rolling through it. I can share, I can share the um, uh, paper when I find it. So yeah. have a chat while yeah. I find it. So this one was interesting to me. So I've got a public health PhD. So my background is looking, well, my PhD was on a physical activity program and implementing that within an existing service. And you can probably hear my son laughing in front of me. He thinks my PhD is really funny. Um, um, and my postdoc work is about mental health now, mainly. I'm sort of moving between physical health and mental health. But um that's sort of by the by. So this kind of stuff is really interesting to me because I think for a long time um, when you went and saw your doctor and said, look, I've read online X, Y, Z, they sort of give you that look like, why are you doing that? Why are you reading? Why are you Googling? You shouldn't be doing that. But that's, yeah, but that's the reality of parents these days. Is, um, in between that time before you get that appointment with your doctor or even you might not even um put in that appointment you're going to be googling your kids symptoms and what's going on for them and trying to figure out what's going on um and so this paper points out especially at the end that um health providers need to start taking this seriously what's on social media um and really not treating parents like like idiots for going and looking for this information um and rather empowering parents 
to find information that's actually accurate, um, not sensationalized, um, all that yeah. kind of good stuff. So I found this fascinating um, when I found it um, from that perspective because I'm really interested in how research implements into the everyday lives of parents. Um, yeah. Because this and so when I did the post on it, I. I sort of broke it down into the good and the bad and the ugly of accessing health information through social media. I thought that that was a nice way of really spacing it out um, because there's some, and I think Jessica's just joined. Maybe we should say Jessica hello. Joined. Hi, Jess. Hi. How are you going? Sorry I was late. I had another meeting backing right into this. That is <laughs> totally fine. We are recording now, just so you know. Perfect. Brilliant. So... With the good, so social media is part of our lives now as parents. Um, most parents are now accessing information from social media and that includes health information and health information about their children as well. Um, so the good thing is that people are finding community through social media. They're finding people who have the same lived or similar lived experience to them. Um, and I think um, in this paper they um, reference a... I think it was in pregnant women that they had increased levels of empowerment and social support when they were when they found that community through social media. So it's not all bad news and we don't want to poo-poo on the health information that we do see on Instagram. And obviously us all sitting here, we put information out on Instagram as well. So we've got this invested interest in making sure that that information is accurate and it's not, it's not terrible. Um, but... There is a beautiful paragraph at the end um, in the, I think it's in the discussion or the results about how um, social media can create echo chambers as well and how, and how that can lead to a group think where one particular <clears throat> um, message is passed on and on and on and on and on until the parents believe that that is the truth, that is a singular message, I think they say in the article. Yeah. Um, which is a bit scary and it can happen really quickly because we're social creatures, we want to be accepted. Um, so if we dissent to, that, dissent to that idea, we can feel um, ostracised or out of the group. So we want, we want to believe what the group is telling us um, and that really tells, tests the health literacy of, parents and I know I know for myself and I think Kristen you've spoken about this before um when we were new mums and we're looking on Instagram and even though we're scientists we can easily fall in the trap of believing um the things that we're shown um and we end up buying courses and things that don't align with our um values as a parent and as a person so um so yeah that's sort of an overview of my perceptions of the article and how that um relates to you know the parental experience of being on social media yeah I think I think it was really it's a really information heavy like there's a lot of good information in there um a lot of this has to be couched in the fact that this is a review of English papers only which is always the case with scoping reviews um and systematic reviews they almost always have an exclusion criteria that says English only um that doesn't mean that other cultures papers are excluded it just means that they have to have been translated into English um and when I was looking at the participant demographic breakdown 
or really like the country of publication breakdown. Um, the majority of it was US and then there was Australia and Canada and the UK and then one for like, like there was only a few that were non-Western cultures. So a lot of this information is really specific to Western cultures and we don't really know much about how it's going on outside. And I find that really interesting because social media exists outside of, you know, America, Australia, Canada and the UK, but it doesn't feel like it sometimes. Um, particularly in the literature but it is I think you make some really good points um in terms of like clinicians attitudes towards parents going I did a bunch of research this is what I found or like this person on social media said this and they have this really like negative um opinion of it and one thing I found really interesting in the paper okay they did a pretty poor job of <laughs> describing um, who the parents were that were more likely to seek. I'm just going to try and find it for you here. Oh, God. Thank you, Adobe. Um, <laughs> so it talks about, like, qualifications, um, like education status and things for the people who actually um, – why won't you highlight? I just want to highlight um, – who actually engage in it, um, in this, like, use of social media for knowledge. So early – um, studies found that lower SES, lower education background parents were the ones using internet and social media um, to seek health information. Uh, and it has completely flipped in recent years. You now find that more higher educated parents are the ones who are engaging um, in this um, information seeking on social media, which is really interesting. They did a really poor job of describing it. So it's unclear really whether it's a flip from old to new it's possible as the, like the generations shift into the millennials um but it's like it, it is an interesting thing to think about that perhaps those like sighs from clinicians those the, the like the negative thoughts about parents bringing their own research um is because it's steeped in like lower education lower ses um which it shouldn't be anyways. Those parents should be doing their own research. It could also be like an ego thing with clinicians where it's just like, you think you know more than me. Like yeah. I know what I'm talking about and it becomes this like like ego defense mechanism um, yeah. that we do see. Yeah, so and I don't know if there's any data on this, but um, it's possible that there's also been an uptick of clinicians being on Instagram and and using that as professional sort of pages as well. And I wonder if that's influenced their um wanting to accept social media as an information source as well um whereas a, a few years ago because instagram's only like 10 years old or something isn't it so only if yeah so only a few years ago it was just a photo sharing app and all of a sudden yeah. it's sort of this information sharing app as well so i wonder yeah. if that's so changed out, um that instagram almost doesn't appear mm. in this review it's almost all facebook um, yeah, that issue. was interesting as well. Yeah, Instagram appears here. Like, this is the part where Instagram actually appears. There's a little bit in 2018. A little bit in 2018, yeah. And then a bunch more in 2020. There is no TikTok, um, which I get it. That's really no. Um, but it does beg the question, like, if they updated this now, even two years later, because more than, like, about 50% of the papers they found were from mm. the two years Thanks. they did it. And they only did January to August in 2020, um, which is interesting because that's like the first six months of COVID. Um, 
So it would be really interesting what an updated version of this looks like because it would be dramatically different again, I think. Definitely, and probably a lot more, um, I think, as everyone, you know, had to go into isolation, lockdowns, didn't have, um, like, appointments with health professionals, then really had no choice but to turn to Dr Google hmm. and I, as a source. I'm pretty sure that the majority of us um, that do knowledge translation on social media started during lockdown. <laughs> I think a lot of us were just like, we need to share the information. Um, but with that, and this happened kind of before the COVID vaccine existed. So hold on, where is it? It says it here. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Um, where is it? There's a inverse relationship. I can't find it. But there's an inverse relationship between um information seeking on social media and vaccine hesitancy. Mm. So the more parents seeked health information on social media, like the higher they rated their hesitancy of vaccines. And there was a lot of studies. So I'm just going to flip back up to them. There was a lot of studies on vaccination when they did like the summaries. Hold on. There you go. Vaccines, 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 vaccines. And this was before the COVID mm. vaccine. So like that kind of tells us, my computer hates me. Um, it's kind of telling that, like, if we did this now, can you imagine, like, what those results would find? Definitely. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Um, okay, yeah. so what else do we Sorry. want to talk about? That's okay. Yeah, Yay. I mean, I think as a clinician, I think there still is this attitude that if you go to social media as a source that I think clinicians do look kind of down on women and parents and patients, um, which is just kind of old fashioned now. Like this is yeah. our village, um, I guess, you know, it used to be you would ask your mother. Well, now you go onto Instagram or Facebook and you ask the general population and see what they have to say. And, yeah. and I think although there are negatives, I guess, a lot of the time there can be some practical advice that comes out of this that maybe a clinician won't tell you. Like a clinician will give you, you know, health facts, but they perhaps won't tell you what to do at two o'clock in the morning to help <laughs> settle your baby or something like that. So I think that it certainly has a place for things, yeah. you know, like those practical tips. Absolutely. And I think, Absolutely. so this was really interesting and like a little bit cringy. So from one study, um, they found that parents preferred health information from social media as they believed other parents were more educated regarding caregiving and self-management strategies than healthcare professionals. I can imagine that we've all felt this too in terms of um, healthcare professionals giving advice on things that they're not qualified to give advice on, like sleep, Jess. Um, <laughs> um, or, Absolutely. I completely agree with that because as why there's a lot of uh, health professionals giving out advice in really specific areas when they're more generally trained. And of course, they're you know that's not a, a criticism as such. Like the you know particularly thinking about a general practitioner or maternal child health, they have to know a lot of things, a little bit about a lot, and they don't always know a lot about the specifics. And when you have people online that sort of dedicate themselves to talking about one specific topic pretty in depth, yeah. then of course people are going to put more, you know, end up probably putting more weight on their opinions as well because yeah. they're actually able to talk about it, you know, at, at length and 
and in detail and, you know, the mechanisms of this and uh, give more specific advice. And then, like Emma, Emma said, there's the whole other aspect of it around community and the village uh, and, you know, practical advice. The other thing that came to mind when you were talking before, Emma, was, like, time and money. Like, mm. to get the depth of information from a, a doctor, which, I mean, as well, you're wondering whether or not they're even really qualified in that really specific area that you're seeking advice in, unless you, you see a specialist. Um, but they can't necessarily afford or are able to access that level of, of advice that they can go online and find. And of course, what they're finding online, there can be really varying levels of quality, but they are getting lots of information and lots for free mm. from the comfort of their home. And then, of course, there are options to purchase more courses, different things like that. But a lot of it is free. It's just right there. All you have to do is keep scrolling. So, you know, it's it's just it's easy to see how people end up putting more weight on information they're getting from social media than they are from healthcare professionals. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think... Um, like it kind of leads into they they asked really good questions in this and they wanted to know like how parents were actually passing this information whether they were using critical insight and there just wasn't a lot of information on it like this is basically the only section they have on how parents were using their um critical insight which means that they like we're not asking enough pointed questions or educating parents enough although we are um that's something we're doing in the last couple of years a lot of us um so like it a lot of parents did ask health professionals to verify that information, but can you imagine how uncomfortable those conversations might have been or how, like, um, invalidated those parents might have feel when they had those conversations? So, like, I really hope the clinicians um, start to, like, show some more compassion and understanding towards how people are doing their own research, especially because getting to healthcare practitioners as a mother of a COVID child was so fucking hard. I couldn't get any doctor to see me because my daughter started daycare in 2020 and she got fevers and I had to keep taking her to the hospital because everyone refused to see her mm -hmm. so like of course we ended up searching for our own results on here so I can understand how it happened um but it's evident from this paper in this very small section that parents really don't know how to evaluate it so I pulled up I should have pulled up the actual thing for the screen but I pulled up Jess Stokes Parish's oh you can't see it um paper on navigating the credibility of web-based information during the COVID-19 pandemic, using mnemonics to empower the public to spot red flags and health information on the internet. Have you guys, do you guys follow Jess Stokes Parish? Yeah, so her crabs model of yeah, um, credibility. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's my, so good. My favourite thing is when she goes, like she steps through it, like either in a post or on a story, she'll apply crabs. Um, and what it does is it helps you figure out um, how to evaluate whether the person and the information being provided um, is a safe and reliable source of health information. Um, I am waiting for her to apply CRABS to my work so I can know how to do better. Because I think CRABS not only provides a framework through which parents um, or anyone can evaluate the information provided on social media, but I also think that um, professionals can use it as a way to be like, this is the standard. There wasn't a standard on social media knowledge translation. This is at least one standard. It's in the health domain, but I'm sure it can be applied to other domains as well. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it's great. And I mean, as you said, like even people who are professionals, even people that, Mm. yeah, you know, do have credibility and expertise, it doesn't mean they don't fall down in the way that they interpret information or disseminate information because everybody is a human at the end of the day. So we need checks and balances to improve. And it's a relatively new thing. Like it's a new medium of communicating all of this, you know, really dense information in a way that parents can access and digest and apply. Uh, And there's not really any, um, we're just applying the skills that we've learned in a completely different, you know, for for a completely different reason or in a completely different way, like how to construct or, you know, arguments and, and do research and all of that, and then translating it over to social media. And, you know, I think that it, there are, um, we, I don't want to kind of toot our own horns. I think, you know, we do a good, like, do a good job. You can, we can always do better. There can always be, yeah, we, we're learning as well as we go along. So, yeah. I do think so. I think that's something really interesting and it's a good parallel is that um, sometimes science communication. So from practitioners can become so like distilled and sterile that it's just like this is science. It's this way or no way. And doesn't that sound like an echo chamber that like just reinforces the message until it's this one truth. And I think a lot of us Mm. and the marker of a good science communicator um, on social media is someone that goes, this is what we found in the science. However, like th- this is how science works. It creates averages, but there are children that sit outside of that. Um, their science changes and it updates. So this is what we know now, but it doesn't mean that it's going to stay that way. Uh, we acknowledge that research looked at this in the past. So no wonder you like your parents are confused. Like this is so having like this more, um, transparent and vulnerable approach is something that kind of goes at odds with people who stake their identity and their intellect and when you put that on a social platform and people are like well hold on wait like you're wrong um it almost turns into the same thing as an echo chamber where professionals will buckle like double down so I think that's a um kind of important thing to pull up here not that it's in the paper but like it's an important thing to know about social media science translators really Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think the thing is that um, social media, as a creator, can make you can funnel you into doing it a very specific way every time because that's what gets engagement, that's what gets the likes. And we're human beings; we love that dopamine hit, somebody liking our post. So, you know, they almost need, like Jess was saying, it almost needs to be that you know checks and balances on us to go, oh, wait a minute, are you just saying this one tiny little finding in this one little paper, making it this big deal so you can get those likes um, because we, we, we enjoy that as human beings? And, you know, what, what's, this, what's stopping us from doing that and what's keeping us honest? Because um, at the moment it's just up to us as individuals and perhaps people who critique our posts as well. Um, and as academics, we're in the academic field, we're used to being critiqued constantly. <laughs> our presentations, our grant applications, our papers, our basically everything we do almost down to every single paragraph we write is open for critique, but it's completely different on Instagram. And you can see how it could possibly go rogue over time when we have that open ability to write anything we want unless we have discerning 
followers who are able to sort of go, wait a minute, that's that doesn't sound right. Can you explain this more? That kind of thing. Um, so even though a lot of us come from a good place, you can see how we can spiral down that pathway of um, not being critical enough of our own work <laughs> that we're putting out there. I think so. And I think one of the things that this paper doesn't talk about is whether parents commented and asked questions on these social media posts as a critical viewer. It doesn't really get into that level of detail, but like as a creator with, you know, videos with millions of views, like the people are having brilliant discussions like I'll bring up an old school like way to test kids like development like a Piagetian task which you know a lot of them haven't held up to scrutiny some of them are still okay but people will be like um how do you know that the child understands the difference between amount and same and different and it's like that is a brilliant question and that is a scientific question worthy of exploration those are things that spent 50 years going unrealized by scientists <laughs> and you figured it out in a 30 second video um so I love when people comment because then that person comments and then the other people look at the comments and all of a sudden you don't just have one person who's able to like have critical insight you see that person have critical insight and then that gives you critical insight and then you apply it to the next thing you see and just as fast as misinformation spreads so can critical insight and I think that's a really interesting thing that I think we should explore I don't know if it's been explored but I think it'd be really cool to look at how because I feel like they've done those things where they track like the network like they do a network analysis of misinformation spreading but like mm. critical insight spreading I don't know it'd be fun no, I agree. I think that yeah. that's a really interesting point because I've noticed a similar thing. I hadn't really given it a lot of thought, but it's it's easy to focus on, yeah, the negatives and the misinformation that spreads. But I, you know, even notice um, sometimes I have followers who will uh, tag me in comments that they make on other things around Instagram in areas that I try to stay away from. Otherwise, I get a bit rageful. Um, but <laughs> it doesn't always work. But uh, uh, so and, you know, some of the comments they make are just brilliant. And I kind of think, you know, I mean, obviously they're a criti critically thinking person anyway, but they're they're taking all of this information that they are finding and it is informing their, you know, their opinions and everything. But it's also allowing them to critically evaluate information that they're getting from other sources that maybe even six months ago they were holding, you know, information sort of evenly around the place. And now they're really managing to sort of pass out what they're finding and and look at it more critically like I love it I get such a kick out of it when I see those sorts of comments and obviously people don't always uh you know tag me but when they do I yeah very happy citizen scientists at their finest I feel like that's what's kind of happening is that you, we are creating communities of citizen scientists um Absolutely. it's it's tricky because we don't have as big a reach because we're not clickbaity but they're the people who do engage, they might be more likely to be inclined towards that, but, you know, they might then share that knowledge and skill with those people around them that wouldn't engage in that kind of topic. I don't know. It's um, so many unexplored questions that this is a good there's, place to start. There's a great line as well. Um, I think it's up on the screen now that you've highlighted about how some parents did self-styled information triangulation by crowdsourcing information and determining consensus yeah. and I was like oh research like in the field like literally not even aware of it but conducting their own research I mean that's incredible yes I really I think it's brilliant like that you like put up a question box on on Instagram being yeah. like 
this is the problem. How do I fix it? And like your exactly. 300 followers are just like, because they're your friends, are like, try this, try that. Yeah. Like, burp this way, swaddle this way. And it's just. Exactly. And I think that clinicians have to stop viewing themselves as a gatekeeper of information, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, Sometimes as well, it can sort of veer into almost, uh, yeah, like defensiveness uh, around, it's, yeah, you know, going with the people with the, the the credibility, the qualifications, you know, the buck kind of stops with us and not liking when there's information coming from other sources that uh, might contradict what they're teaching. But also we have to remember that a lot of the time evidence, I mean, it takes Years and years for evidence to trickle down into policy. Years. years. No, 17 years. 17. Yeah, I knew it was more than 10, but I didn't know if it was 20. Um, (laughs) 17 years. Wow. You know, and and it takes even longer in many cases for it to actually affect sort of society and culture. And, you know, if we know that, then I just don't even think as as people who have any sort of qualification or credibility we can hold up hold up hold over other people um it's not really enough to discount what's happening on the ground for people because that information too is going to is informing research which then in turn informs policy eventually uh yeah it's I don't know if that was very articulate but no, it's excellent. And I think <laughs> I think that like I think the important thing is that clinicians uh like I think clinicians are now shifting from gatekeepers of information to critical analyzers using their depth of experience and knowledge um of information. So I think more and more um people are bringing a pile of information to their clinicians and going, "Help me figure out how to pass all of this, whether it's relevant or not. So we still have just as much expertise and value placed on clinicians. It's just that they're not the gatekeepers of all information. They're the gatekeepers of like which information to listen to because they're more likely Mm -hmm. to be able to apply the Krabs model intuitively. They're more likely to understand the science behind one over the other. And they've had clinical experience with it. So they've watched how this played out in a similar situation with a similar human. So clinicians are not irrelevant anymore because they were never walking encyclopedias. They were always far more than that. They always had more like important skills than a level of knowledge. And like clinicians will often not know everything about every problem. They'll have to do the research, but they do the research quickly and they understand it well and they can pass that information. And now they don't necessarily have to do all of that research and that extra legwork because they can, take what the patient has already collected and they can go through that and it's almost like the co-design of a diagnosis between the experiencer or the observer and the clinician that's treating them and I think Mm. that that's just a new model of clinician and treatment in more generally I don't know it's what I think anyways (laughs) um and Jess and Kristen to build on what you're saying um in at least in my field of research um, the focus is now on co-design with end users and communities as opposed to in the past where a researcher goes, oh, I have an interesting question. I'm going to spend a million dollars and try and answer that question. And then that research becomes, it's just irrelevant to the end user because it's not including them in that design of the study. So I'm pretty sure in the investigator grant, which is a health and medical research grant that um, early career researchers in my field have to go for in order to 
fund all their research. There's um, a section in there where you have to say how you've collaborated and co-designed with the community um, because it's just a huge waste of money if you don't. So the thing is, what people are seeing on social media is going to feed back into research because that's what people are talking about, that's what they're thinking about, that's what's important to them. So we can't ignore that. Oh, darling. Yeah, I think that you are incredibly right, Lisa. I think co-design is so central to a lot of this that um, citizen scientists, parents, people on the ground are seeing things that clinicians aren't because there is one clinician living one life and they are seeing hundreds of people living different lives. So it's this is like a, a phenomenon, sorry, a phenomenon in psychology known as cumulative culture where we don't just generate knowledge from scratch every time a new generation is born. Otherwise, we still be trying to figure out fire every weekend. Um, and, but this is what a lot of non-human primates do. They they don't transmit information quite in the same way. That's why they like humans are more like civilized, I guess, than others. Um, but what we do is we imitate um, and transmit information to each other, and then we innovate upon, upon it. And I don't think that um, we necessarily need to look down upon people that don't have the same qualifications. We have to look at the information being presented and we take it from there. Um, so co-design is really valuable because those people have their own experiences and information and it just maximizes our ability to do things, which is awesome. All right, do we have any other questions or statements about this paper? We kind of got a little off track. Um, do you have any critiques about it? I really loved this paper. I, I really thought it was interesting. Yeah. And so, and, and I guess I think that we touched on, like in such a short amount of time, I think if you'd redid this paper now, it would be completely different again like in a couple of years it's just shifted I would love to see the data on yep. TikTok it'd be so yep. fascinating because what is it like million people join TikTok every minute or something like it's just ridiculous and there's so much information being shared on there I, I'd find that fascinating and it has like spiked like if you talk to any psychiatrist it spiked the diagnoses of autism of ADHD exactly of, like of other health like issues like it's just um mental so I think yeah the biggest comments on this paper in terms of like its limitations have to do with its sample and um, the fact that it's already out of date because <laughs> this moves so quickly so it's a super western sample and it's only like the only platforms it really looks at are Facebook Twitter and YouTube um, and it's very minimally in those areas like it's majority just Facebook and like a bunch of other like Twitter has a lot like I don't understand why Twitter has so much in that space like how do you fit that much health information into 280 characters I am <laughs> surprised in terms of the way that this, this scoping review was run it was really rigorous it's a very well done scoping review um, they've got a lot of supporting information I pulled out their appendices because they've written they've supplied the different search terms they use which makes it replicable it means that we can pick up those search terms, chuck them into the database, and we can update this ourselves. Um, we're not going to do that because that takes an F ton of time. I'm currently doing a systematic review and it's killing me, um, but it's very well done in a way that's replicable. Um, there was a bit, like, it was a bit confusing 
um, how they summarize the findings on SES and income, like in higher education. But that's probably because the actual research is a bit confusing. Other than that, though, it's a pretty solid paper. And the first author has a student email. So I, I, I don't know if they, if they are still a student, but they have a student email. So like solid effort to Erica Frey. Like, Absolutely. Oh, 100%. Oh, she's at UTS. She's Australian. We love that. Yeah. We are biased. Isn't that great? <laughs> I, almost put, I almost put that in the, when I summarised it, I wanted to put this was done by Australian researchers, but I just yeah. ran out of room. So, but how cool is that? It's actually, there's actually a lot of research coming out, especially in the parenting space that's done in Australia, which is very bizarre because usually it's all done in the US. So it's nice mm -hmm. to see a different country um, represented. The next thing we should work on is trying to see how social media um, permeates this kind of stuff in other cultures that are hmm, far more underrepresented in the literature. Um, but yeah, that's, I think it was a pretty good paper. Yeah, and I think they um they also excluded pregnancy, and I think me me as a midwife, I was like, oh, I would have yeah. loved to have seen that, like, because it is, is just that already a systematic review in itself. Like, does that because mm. it's probably huge? Yes, it would be massive. But I was oh, oh I've got to have a look at that, like, see if that's been done. It would, that would also be, be interesting though to look at how people you know, find and interpret information in pregnancy and then like check back in six months because if people are doing a little bit of a head research, for example, around breastfeeding or sleep mm -hmm. or, you know, trying to work out what kind of parent they want to be um, before they actually have a real live tiny human that has mm -hmm. all of its, you know, humanness mm -hmm. um, and just seeing seeing um, how all of that shifts oh. over over time. I mean, obviously it does, it shifts anyway, but the social media piece and how that kind of forms part of that journey. Kristen, you look like you really want to say something. <laughs> I, it's a good point because, um, sorry, that's me stimming if that makes you confused. Um, but it, it's a really good point because what I really want to see is how, like what accounts people follow before pregnancy in mm. the first six months and after the first six months and see if they have different themes. Like if prior to birth, they have like, you know, the, the societal norm stuff like sleep trainers and like baby led weaning and like all of these like trendy things that they've heard are like the best way to be a parent. And then like six months later after they've had their baby, like it shifts again to like, um, you know, the kinder side of Instagram and TikTok, which is like, be compassionate with yourself. Like good enough parenting is good enough. Like, <laughs> like, you know, the place that we inhabit. Um, I really want to see if that happens on a much bigger scale because I know it happened for me. I'm sure it happened for quite a few of you. Like, it's just interesting. Like, anyways. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I went no, back I to my personal account the other day, which I don't really go on very often, and it was all the stuff that I followed through pregnancy and early motherhood, and I was like, oh. <laughs> there was a problem with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go back to my, my page again. <laughs> yeah, my personal page has far more, like, influencers and mummy bloggers like whereas, I don't, whereas my 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 like business page which is where I live like I don't leave my business page my business page is all like educational stuff so it is interesting like I'd like to see in a non-biased sample sorry friends but mm -hmm. um for anyone watching this how did your follow list change or your favorite influencers slash social media information sources shift over time mm -hmm. um 
because I'd like to see if it's not just like us with like, you know, the nerding out element that is our brains. Um, but if other people that just use social media for entertainment and consumption and a little bit of information seeking, how that changed as well. Yes, um, I was just pulling up this um, Prisma diagram. So this is what you use for systematic and scoping reviews. Um, to set to talk to your point, Emma, on the fact that there wasn't enough pregnancy stuff in there. I imagine either it was too much, mm -hmm. um, which made the um, systematic the scoping review untenable because they they only found 500 papers, which is tiny. My systematic mm -hmm. review at the moment has 10,000, which is a monster. But like you know, um, I imagine it probably would have doubled the size, and mm -hmm. it might have like convoluted it a little bit because it, it's about pregnancy and pregnancy is more about the mother than it is about the mm. child but it would but be then I found it interesting that they included breastfeeding because I I would have thought there would be like Something. that would be its own yeah you must have, <clears throat> they must have really tight exactly search terms I think because, to only end up with 500 papers exactly. to start with I mean yes. I can show you what their search terms were they oh, must have had a, a lot of yeah tool. like exclusion and 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 Dude, and tiny so my search criteria is massive so this is what they've got they've got social media or facebook or twitter or youtube or wechat what is wechat or pinterest or instagram or online social networks or reddit or whatsapp facebook messenger like so on and so forth oh they even took they even looked at tiktok but TikTok. back then it didn't really exist mm. Mm. um and health and information or consumer mm -hmm. um and that's the W slash three means with behavior, seeking, engagement, or need within three words of information or consumer. I know this is really hard to pass if you've never done a systematic review like this. This is all just like you work with a librarian at your university and they're pretty much specialized in these. Um, Good so old yeah. Boolean. I know. The, uh, like helped. normal browsers used to use Boolean search terms in the same way that article, like journals do. Um, but now it's changed with all algorithm and trying to predict what you want to find. So it just doesn't work the same way anymore. But the just standard Google used to just work the same, exactly the same way. Yeah, I know. Isn't that terrifying? Um, mm. <laughs> Google is much friendlier now. Google Scholar <laughs> knows exactly what I want when I ask for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they didn't actually have a huge amount of um, search terms. Mm -hmm. um, they were mostly looking at um, the title and abstract, which is pretty standard. Um, they didn't have any exclusion criteria, which I find pretty interesting. Um, but I guess they like probably didn't need it if they ended up with such a small population anyways. Um, you really need to be careful about exclusion criteria anyways in terms of like putting it into your search because it might take things out that are actually relevant. Um, but yeah, they did a really good job, um, as far as I'm concerned, but you're right. There was a lot of breastfeeding. Where is it? Hold on. One breastfeeding. <coughs> um, I feel like there was more than one. I, I yeah, I, I did sure too. I thought I saw three. a couple. Yeah. Yeah. There's three on breastfeeding. There's a lot on vaccines. There's a few on autism. Um, dental trauma really surprised me. Yes. Um, rare genetic disorders why are there so many searches on measles like I thought we'd really like gotten on top of that one is that like linked with the vaccine definitely <laughs> I, yeah. I would think it forms part of that whole yeah orbit um, yeah I don't I'm surprised there wasn't more type 1 diabetes 
um, mm-hmm. that's a pretty prevalent like um, place where parents need a lot of support. There is some ASD um, and there was some general information. Mm. Um, I feel like there's another table that tells you. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, this is just more simple to look at, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I don't know. But there was some breastfeeding. Most of it is self-management and self-directed healthcare. Where's the other breastfeeding one? Self-directed healthcare. Because like there isn't really healthcare allocated well for breastfeeding. So that's not mm-hmm. at all surprising. Yeah. Yeah. I I would Absolutely. imagine there'd be a lot of is this normal? What yeah. do mm-hmm. I do if he's clicking while she sucks? Is this normal? Yeah. Yeah. So complimentary feeding? I guess that might be like weaning. But anyway, so a few of the things that you'd think are more common in like the parenting space, like breastfeeding and feeding kind of also sleep. Yeah. Is there sleep on here? I didn't see, I I didn't think, which I I was surprised that, but again, that might just be the sort of more recent push towards less mainstream sleep training and yeah. Yeah. So it could just be that it's more emphasis, more emphasis on the medicalization, but I think a review like this for like, early parenthood challenges um, would also be really interesting and telling. Um, but I am not about to do that because I'm at full capacity. So someone else has to do it, please. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Any final remarks? No. Cool. No. <laughs> Go journal club. Um, <laughs> well, I'm going to get us all to say goodbye and then I'm going to stop the recording so we can chat. <laughs> <laughs> all right bye Craig right. so much bye. bye all right how do I stop the recording <laughs> I don't know how to stop recording accidentally leaves group yeah. accidentally